0: All right, big weekend here of games to get to. And I think let's start with Saturday's game. Suns eke it out over the Clippers 84 to 80, despite myriad fouls in the last minute of the game. It was the lowest combined score of any game this season. Did I see that correctly? I thought I saw that. Uh,
1: You you did see that correctly. Uh, Tim Reynolds of the Associated Press had it that this was the lowest scoring game in the NBA this season. And 685 games this year had more points through three quarters than this one did at the end. (laughs) Yeah yeah so I'm I'm I will say I'm pretty thrilled we didn't do it for the live show for a couple different reasons
0: oh yeah and I mean it didn't take 30 minutes for the last two minutes like game two did but there are also just a a ton of crazy plays at the end which we'll get to but I I think the theme that I want to get to here is you and I've always said going back to his Cleveland days Ty Lue Always defaults to offense. You know whether that was playing Kevin Love at center. Uh, I think actually the fact that in the 2016 finals, the fact that Kevin Love was hurt actually helped Tyloo because then he went to a group that could switch, and that actually really shut down the Warriors over the last two and a half games of that run. And. He went all offense in the Jazz series. Even once Kawhi Leonard went down, he went all offense in the Mavs series. And it worked great. That was the the thing that we wondered. It's like, hey, DeAndre Ayton against this small group. How's that going to work? And then we basically just didn't see the small group that really made sense all series. And then he finally went to that group. Uh, Marcus Morris started this one. I guess they thought he was feeling better. About five minutes into the game, they go to that group and you know because they had gone small before but it was with like rondo and canard together like it wasn't a group that really had like the toughness to switch on the guard line and so what i wanted to see was five of the six of beverly Mann, paul george batum morris and reggie jackson out there And they still didn't have batum they he, i thought he really should have played a lot more than he did and but then for some reason they didn't actually switch. Yeah, was crazy. Group. They went to Marcus Morris trying to play conventional pick and roll defense, which and Zubats don't don't get me wrong. I thought Zubats actually was very very good defense. These last two games really really solid. Really, really, these last three games, I think he's been very solid. It's been a big part of. Uh, how they've really gotten the Suns' offense under control. Obviously, the Suns shot poorly, but you know the the shot locations, everything has been really good for the Clippers defensively the last couple of games. So Zubats, I think I think there's a pretty good argument that they would be better defensively with Zubats than switching everything but they just they had marcus morris playing a conventional pick and roll defense and that was just of course that was going to be a complete disaster he has no length he's injured he can't block a shot he doesn't play conventional pick and roll defense very often so you're giving up dunks to deandre and the pick and roll is only a few possessions honestly but they never tried switching with that group defensively and then they got lit up for a couple possessions and then they went away with it again i mean Zubots played a ton of minutes
1: yeah Zubots played 40 minutes in game three yeah sorry game four
0: Yes. And then finally. Zubats gets one foul on Devin Booker with like three minutes left and they go to the small group against Aiton and Aiton was titanic in this game uh and all of a sudden they're getting great shots now they missed a couple of like wide open threes they also had a play where Terrence Mann was open underneath and Jake Crowder had to make an awesome play to get a deflection to prevent a layup there but they finally neutralized Aiton with that group but they still they just didn't switch and and you know, like so of all the players uh, you know Ty going has gone up against some unbelievable players in the playoffs. DeAndre Ayton has been very good in this series and he killed him on the offensive glass and all that stuff. But for him to be the guy who gets him out of switching, I just don't agree with that. And particularly because they never even tried it in this series. Like, And more than that, they're giving up the way that they were doing pretty well against the pick and roll was they're having Zubots do a lot of late switching onto Booker or Paul and then those guys would go one-on-one at Zubots or take the shot over him. And so then DeAndre Ayton is getting to the front of the room against guard, and he had a ton offense. What do you have? Eight offensive rebounds in this game. And so basically, you're giving up. And and also they had a couple of plays where they got a pass to eight and a little duck into on that. But so if you're so scared of DeAndre Ayton at the rim, what you're going to switch their smallest player on the floor onto DeAndre Ayton once penetration has already occurred to the elbow, and that's a very easy pass or. The shot is going to be a very short shot from the free throw line and in where it's going to be a soft rebound where his position at the rim is going to be more useful. Uh, and you know that your best rebounder is out of it contesting the shot. So if you're if you're going to do that, obviously you're not that scared of DeAndre Ayton because that's your strategy. So why not just switch it to begin with? try to keep those guys further out in the perimeter. Give yourself a chance to switch a larger player onto eight and under the rim behind the play instead of just letting these guys get ahead of steam and get to the elbow. Now, again, as I said, the late switching, all that work, the offensive rebounding, as good as it was, they scored 84 points in the game. You can't complain. But they weren't giving themselves a chance to switch defensively, but their bigger problem is they couldn't fucking score and they couldn't score because Deandre Ayton was massive at the rim and they didn't have the spacing that made them so good. And they didn't have the shooting that made them so good. And so it was really, it was an offensive loss, but it's because they weren't willing to go small. So sorry for that long rant there, but I, and the Suns are better than them anyway. I don't think they're going to win this series anyway, et cetera, et cetera. But it just, it didn't make sense to me. And then when they go that way and get great shots in the last three minutes of the game, it was, you know, Beverly had a wide open corner three. It was... It was very upsetting to me if if, just that they weren't playing the best that they could play well
1: and i mean one way of summarizing that is the danger of looking at results instead of the process and i thought that the point about the shots they were getting is so important because it's it's something you and i talk about a lot when we do live broadcasts whether it was whether it's the league pass version or this one is generally speaking the quality of shots that a team is getting is more predictive of future success than whether those specific shots Went winning or not and what was so frustrating to me about tyloo Lu's Ty fits and starts was that it kind of gave him cover for something that he wanted to do and that was wrong and like so if a couple of those a couple of those good looks had gone down a couple of things would have gone differently you brought up the end of the game and so i think that's one big part and lou to his credit he made a couple of rotational adjustments over the last couple of games that i thought helped their chances of winning rashawn rondo sure. did not play at all in game four that's a good decision Cousins basically was only in as a, um, for like a a weird sequence, um, but he basically didn't play in this game, and Canard's minutes were more limited. However... The way that Tyloo got to that point wasn't ramping up Nikola Batum, who was so huge in the Jazz series. It was giving Man a little bit more time. And remember, Marcus Morris is limited, so he only played 22. It's more time for Zubots, more time for Beverly, who I thought did a lot of good things defensively, more time for Reggie Jack. Like, basically push the starters harder and then give Terrence Man more minutes. And it's like, Nikola Batum, yeah, he was one for six from the field, but A, the defense works a lot better when he's out there, and you can go to some different configurations that don't work as well without Batum on the floor, and because the Suns respect his jump shot more than some of the other guys that are out there, I mean, especially for comparing him to Zubots, it gives the other players opportunities, and that's not always reflected in his shots, but it's reflected in the shots that the team gets during his time.
0: Yeah. No, I- I agree there. The other thing that was weird was starting Marcus Morris over Mann, which, you know, they won the last game. And and they won it pretty comfortably. So why they decided to change up, I, I didn't really get it. I thought they started off, Paul George is on... CP and the Suns go up 14 to 2. They didn't stay with it for that long. I guess George just wanted to like set the tone or something, but that was like hero ball defense, and George is just not that good at getting over a screen. CP got started early. Suns got out in transition a ton early. Um and, and you know, Terrence Mann was he was doing a really good job, I thought, on Chris Paul, and obviously Beverly was doing a really good job on Booker so that was a a little bit weird you know the Suns had this great early pace that ended pretty quickly their pace was quite languid uh, by the end but I think I think I want to talk a little bit more about DeAndre Ayton and his performance so really the only guy who had a good offensive performance maybe in the entire game for either team with eight out of 14 nine offensive rebounds four and also had four block shots uh, on the defensive end plus eight that had 19 points in 41 minutes again the ability to play that many minutes at a high level for a big is really really impressive also uh, only had four fouls in that time but the difference between he and Zubots, right? Like, oh, they kind of match each other, right? Like Zubots had seven offensive rebounds and Ayton had nine. Well, DeAndre Ayton, he actually is able to do something with his offensive rebound. He's got incredibly soft hands. He's right there at the front of the rim. He's able to tip it in. And usually something good will happen. Whereas Zubots, like he's sort of getting a hand on it. He's like knocking it off the backboard. He's like bringing it down, kind of losing it, you know, not able to go back up for a tip. And so you know at one point I think the teams had like equal offensive rebounds they both had 33 percent offensive rebounds in the first quarter and the Suns had seven second chance points and the Clippers had zero because DeAndre Ayton was actually able to do something with his offensive rebounds whereas Zubats you know wasn't really able to or he was kind of batting it around and it would pop out to someone and of course you know nobody in this game could hit a three-pointer which was a big hurt obviously and the Clippers had in particular had so many wide open three pointers in this game yeah and by
1: by the way the final the final total on second chance points was 13 for the suns and seven for the clippers right Um, yeah and yeah, go up. And so and with Aiden, I think for me the most telling and again, Aiden didn't play the entire game, though he did play 41 minutes, is actually not the offense. So the offense was great. The Clippers were 11 of 24 in the restricted area in this game, and they did get 32 free throws, notably missed missed eleven of those 32 free throws, which you know think of in a game that was this low scoring and that was this that was this close for a lot of it. That 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 looms a little bit large. But the idea that the Clippers weren't getting as much around the basket. And that they, they when when Nate was there, and yeah, they were getting some offensive rebounds, but those were pretty contested. That's part of why the Clippers' field goal percentage in the in the restricted area was so low, as some of those didn't go in. But also seven of nineteen from floater range, and that the 7 of 19 the proportion is important because that's 37% field goal percentage from floater range which is worse than league average by far but that's also a ton of attempts and so to be able to not only contest the things that are around the basket but get the clippers to settle more often i thought that made a huge difference
0: no absolutely and yeah i mean this is a great three point shooting team. both teams are good three point shooting team and i mean so some of these but I, I you know it didn't seem to me the suns 420 clippers 5 of 31 i mean i thought the clippers it didn't seem to me i mean I, their possessions obviously where they had to like jack stuff up but in the clippers defense as well to hold them oh, this team only 23 point attempts i mean that's really really good and you know 31 for the clippers is probably a bit fewer than they would like to go five out of 31 they started off three of 17 just like in game three and i was like oh yeah you know they went uh they hit over 50% in the second half maybe they'll do that again oh no no actually they, they did not uh, in fact do that um any other kind of like big themes that that stuck out to you here
1: well there was that crazy stretch in that was in the fourth right yeah where, where the score was 71 to 70 for more than three and a half minutes there was not a made field goal for more than four minutes and then thankfully uh, Monty Williams drew up a nice ATO and they got a finish for DeAndre Ayton which broke it up but I mean th- this was a well-competed game defensively but a lot of those I think it was 17 consecutive miss shots were good looks that just didn't fall it had it, it, this game had a lot of that
0: Well, the Suns in particular had like five rim in and out during that period. This, I thought, was the most incredible stat of the entire game. Uh, Ty Lu, I think, actually had this stat at the end, uh, so I I didn't check if this is true or not. I'll take his word for it. Uh, The Clippers had 12 chances in this game where they had the ball with a chance to take the lead, and they converted on zero of them. Wow. They never took the lead. They're just, I mean, they're like, and you mentioned like that 71 to 70 forever. The 17 straight misses, but that's, that's totally insane. I mean, it was just watching this one. I, I just like had my head in my hand, just like couldn't believe that they kept missing and some of the shots that the suns were missing too and it just was really really ugly um
1: uh this was a challenging game for devin booker i thought you know beverly defended him well he did look uncomfortable in the face mask but then you know had definitely had some good moments and was able to get to the free throw line which was probably the saving grace for for booker offensively
0: yeah i mean he he was 8 of 22 which made you like an offensive superstar in this game when paul was. Paul is six to 22 campaign was two for eight although I thought his return was really big uh and then Paul George was five out of 20 um you know that real as we mentioned like nobody other than Aiden really was able to score with any kind of proficiency well
1: I mean one of the other crazy stats with that Phoenix which has plenty of good shooters in their starting five their starters in this game were one of 14 from three and mikhail bridges didn't even take one
0: yeah but that's an indication obviously of uh, again the clippers defense like being yes. pretty good uh, and and yeah you know, i mean you mentioned the 13 second chance points i mean like that's not like you can live with that right like they weren't like getting well, killed and on it's that, 13 that second
1: bad. chance points when a team misses 55 shots in the game
0: yeah yeah that's true right like i mean you you have you know the offensive rebound percentage is right, 32 i mean you'd like it to not be that high but you know that's not that's like a core. you know oh two or three more offensive rebounds over the course of a game when you're getting when you're playing that good of initial defense uh, is pretty good i mean their problem again was on the offensive when you're giving up eight block shots to Phoenix because you have no spacing and you're just trying to slam in. I mean, I, I remember I had in my notes here too that Paul George, when they went to the small group, immediately got in for a layup uh, with DeAndre Ayton just like glued to the corner and they, they just would not... And I thought Lou had a chance to go to the small group again. Aiton comes back in after like two minutes gone by in the fourth. And he just, no, nope, Zubat just got to get back in. We got to stop Aiton. And it was, you know, he's a dependent player. And okay, you know what? Like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they would have tried the small lineup against him. And they would have just gotten so killed on defense that the offense wouldn't have made up for it. But like they scored 80 points. Like they had, they needed to try something else to to score because it just was not working. And um, uh, you know, to again, did not even try this thing that beat you know the best regular season team in the league because Aiton is like a pretty good finisher around the rim. You know, I, I think that was just, it was just surrendering. It wasn't even trying. And then, and obviously, did not switch as well. If they're going to stay in a conventional pick and roll defense with Marcus Morris, then yeah, no, you you definitely would rather just leave Zubats in. But you, you nobody says you have to do that. Um, any other kind of big things? I got like some small notes. I want to talk a little bit about at the end of the game too, since it was such a such a shit show.
1: I mean. How did you think that Chris Paul looked phys- physically in Game Four compared to Game Three? I thought he was. I thought he was. You know, he seemed like he had his wind. I mean, they, they talked during the broadcast about Paul, that. Money was actually a little bit thankful that Paul played as many minutes as he did in three because it showed he had the wind. And I didn't think stamina was his problem. It's just shots not falling.
0: You know, I did think that they they went to so much of a prevent offense down the end where they were not oh. even getting into their offense until the very end, and they weren't pushing the ball. I mean, as many misses as the Clippers had, and frankly, as many offensive rebounds too, like they were trying for the offensive glass. So I thought, you know, Paul, he pushed it up early. That was They had talked about how their pace was too slow in game three, and they really just kind of got away from that. And that maybe could have been a stamina thing for Chris Paul. Now, Chris also, I thought, was really good defensively. Like Paul yes. George tried to ISO on him a couple of times, and CP, like, drew an offensive foul when he kind of like hooked paul george but push off p also uh got got a little aggressive there and then he also forced him into a really difficult fade away in the second half so is what reminded me actually of when paul guarded kevin durant in a playoff series way back in 2014 when he and as they won a, a game to i think it was game four of that series to send it back to okc to set up uh you know one of their the first of their many playoff collapses uh, with cp um I, I loved, and these are some smaller stuff here. I loved that they called an offensive foul on Chris Paul doing the, I'm going to weave into your path. Oh, the thank
1: goodness i mean it's not basketball it's it, it and and it, it being in the it being in his backcourt was made it even more egregious
0: yeah i mean he already like injured anthony davis with that once years ago and patrick beverly knew exactly what chris paul was going to do and so he like basically sprinted at a diagonal away from him and paul like still tried to jump in front of him so yeah, i i love that, oh, that call was made
1: the return of abdel nader
0: yeah I thought that, he looked. And, I thought he
1: looked good. You know, his minutes yeah. didn't end up working out super well. Missed, missed a shot and and uh, had had like had a couple fouls. But I thought that having him out there, you know, it's a different wrinkle that they have. And Nader playing over Tory Gregg was significant.
0: Yeah, solid work by Tory Craig to play zero minutes and have a negative five in the box score just because he was in as a defensive replacement and like when they were fouling and stuff. But yeah, Nader. I mean, it was I mean, crazy. He he was a fixture in the rotation and then. Got hurt, ended up having to have surgery, but then uh, was back. And quite a statement from Monty Williams of how much he, he trusted him to have him in there playing over Torrey Craig. And, you know, I thought his defense was okay. He got a little aggressive fouling, you know, didn't do much offensively, but he is, he's probably a better shooter than than Torrey Craig. And I, I liked what he did during the regular season. So that'd be interesting to see whether he plays again. Um, Tyloo changed up his rotation also taking Reggie Jackson out pretty early did what we requested for him to do to just have Reggie Jackson be the backup point guard play with Kennard at the start of the second take Rajon Ron out of the rotation entirely and I don't know how well you can say that that worked necessarily but at least they didn't get killed in those minutes so I, I think it was the right approach Uh, so and we'll see whether that changes in game five whether they consider giving rondo a look again but you know, obviously Rondo would I think really hurt them on both ends, and they're you know just playing man more like man Beverly. I, I also thought Reggie Jackson had, I mean, continuing the improvement that we've seen from him lately. Just another very good defensive game. Just was pretty perfect defending all the Spain pick and roll action and switching between the two guards. You know, the Eaton got like a couple of dunks in pick and roll, but most of that they really just did a very nice job communicating. Uh, you know, Reggie again, I thought was good as a closeout guy running off the foul line i think he deserves a lot of credit for the suns only getting up 23 point attempts and you know he did struggle to eight out of 20 i mean 24 from the field really the first rough shooting game that he's had in a while two of oh. nine from three
1: also this was only a 91 possession game that's a part of part of why the scores were so low is that they had these really long possessions as you mentioned was that, was some of that with chris paul
0: yeah another part of it was the ball did not go through the basket
1: also (laughs) true um Cameron Payne
0: we mentioned him briefly uh perhaps surprising that he was able to return given that he wasn't able to play in game three after four minutes spraining that ankle but you know I thought he didn't look much the worse for where he started off he hit a three immediately and just to be able to give them 20 minutes so Paul and Booker only had to play 38 each I think was important uh Devin Booker you know, he threw the mask away, didn't really seem to help him even. He was 0-5 from three and had zero assists as well. Ended up following out, had five turnovers. I mean, it was a really ugly game for him. And it had some pretty dumb fouls. Like he had his third foul over the backbreaker in the backcourt and... Uh, after he missed a layup, then he decided he was just going to take it off, and he basically, I think he said afterwards, like, "All right, if I got to have surgery in the off season, like, so be it. I don't care." Um, so obviously, he was being bothered quite a bit by that mask, but I don't know that that was, necess- you know, that could have just been projection by him of like the fact that he was going to be missing those shots, regardless. Who knows? And you know, CP. I mean, I thought Zubats just did a wonderful job yes. of, as a as a pick and roll defender. And late, I thought I thought and-
1: Zubats did well on CP and on Booker
0: absolutely and when he got switched onto them particularly late he just did a good job of contesting he did block booker once and uh got him clean but then uh, slammed into him with the body for a, a foul but yeah i mean just his ability to kind of faint into the play and you know he moves his feet a little bit better than you would expect it you know again just seeing seeing the difference between the way he was playing that pick and roll versus the way that Jokic was playing it in the previous series it was just massive obviously the Clips have better rear view contest guys as well but a lot of it was just uh him switching on to them late and you know Paul and Booker could have hit a few more tough shots they are tough shot makers but uh Zubac got as good of a contest on those plays as you could possibly hope for most of the time um also i've been a little disappointed in devin booker's iso game this series I, I talked about that some uh you know he hasn't really even against like someone like reggie jackson he hasn't really looked that great um anything you want to talk about at the end i don't know if we have to go through like possession by possession but it was it was a weird end to the game
1: it definitely was a weird end of the game um i thought it was a. it ended up being a very impactful challenge by tyloo with about a minute to go um originally it was a it was a defensive foul blocking foul which if booker had gotten the free throws in made them it would have put given the suns an insurmountable seven point lead with a minute five to go instead reversed into an offensive foul which not only meant that it took those potential took those two free throws off the board but also that was devin booker's sixth foul and i thought they were going to reverse it be or sorry sorry i thought they were going to uphold it because reggie jackson so the foul that they called was incorrect but i thought that reggie jackson had reached and so they could you know you can work with that as well. But calling an offensive foul was totally reasonable to me. Yeah. Like
0: no, another good defensive play by Reggie Jackson and another yeah. time that they screwed up the switch at the point of attack uh, as well. They they had a miscommunication. Actually no I I don't know that that was Reggie Jackson who was on the charge there no no
1: Reggie Jackson Reggie Jackson reached uh, he was he was away from the
0: charge oh early early I see yeah Yeah, okay yeah because yeah Jackson blew it yeah I can't remember who it was who actually came over and took that um
1: might have been PG i am trying to remember for sure yeah yeah also
0: like they PG went for like the defensive hero ball guarding Chris Paul after Booker fouled out and again didn't do like a very good job like why you wouldn't put Patrick Beverly on him instead I don't really understand that. Aiton got two offensive rebounds in in the last minute uh but then lost the second one out of bounds and the uh 14 on the shot clock saved the Clippers at least for a little bit um they also in the last minute the Clippers with the five out lineup they got man on a quick slip to the rim for a layup to cut it to three and Phoenix did a good job uh, of following after eight and loses out of bounds uh Mikael Bridges Committed a foul pretty early um, and they then had to take the ball out of bounds. They throw it in and Bridges, I don't know if he was intentionally trying to do this or not, but like they try to get PG inside the arc at like uh, on the wing. And then I think they're going to try and set up a three out of that. And Bridges actually fouled before PG could even make the catch. But while I mean, the I think it, in the
1: I honestly think it's it's an innovation that until they like, unless and until they change the rules, the team should do because we've always wondered yeah. about like you like there are circumstances where you should commit a foul, but you're worried about a three. The way that you could get around that is just fouling after the throw but before the catch.
0: Yeah. Now you're still limited by it potentially being an away from the play foul as well. So you got you got to it's got to be to you have to time it really well yeah yeah and you may not be close to the guy close enough to the guy if that's the guy they're throwing it to by definition he's probably open but in that case he had just kind of posted up on him and so he he was right there (laughs) speaking
1: Um, of execution demarcus cousins trying to intentionally miss a free throw i'm sure i'm sure it rankled you
0: I, I well, I watched the I watched most of the game, and then I actually because we took yesterday off, I actually went to dinner, and I came back and watched the end. So I'd seen a reference <laughs> to it on Twitter,
1: or or B so or BG chatting. You just Nate, that was related to. DeMarcus oh, that's West. what that was about. Yeah. <laughs> It was, a fa- it was a failed intentional free throw, missed free throw. Like, that's your thing. Oh, man. And- I mean, he, he
0: almost put that ball through the backboard from the free throw line. It was the I do know if he didn't know the rule. I mean, it was just, it was terrible. I mean, because he had gotten a loose ball foul Now, I did think that the Suns screwed up after Chris Paul could have hit a a free throw to get it to four. He misses with 3.7 left. They get the rebound. Paul George is starting to push it up. And I think at that point, they're so far away with no timeouts that you just let him go because they did actually give themselves by fouling there. George hits the first and then intentionally missed the second. And they actually had, or or was, yeah, yeah, that was Paul George again. There are so many fouls in this period to prevent a three pointer from getting up, but they, at that point like i don't i i think your odds of giving up a three with 3.7 seconds left starting to dribble the ball up in the backcourt are a lot lower than your chance that you intentionally miss the second free throw and all you need is like a tip in for a two to tie it like you're, you're putting yourself in much more danger i think by committing the foul at that point when they have no timeouts left but other than that they executed pretty well
1: well and then um, the other the other thing yeah. i wanted to mention i believe it was with five seconds ago there were so many fouls and so many reviews that it's hard to know for sure. But the referees, and I wonder if this was deliberate. So there was a play where Patrick Beverly knocked the ball. Chris, I think Chris Paul was dribbling up the court after a rebound. And Patrick Beverly knocked the ball out of his hand. And after they'd reviewed seemingly every single thing in that game, the referees did not review that. And when I looked at when I watched the replay, it looked to me that if you had done the Zapruder film, it would have been Clipper's ball. but Here's the thing. It's a really weird thing to reconcile because... That ball should be Suns' ball. Like, in, in a just world, Patrick Beverly knocked the ball out of, I believe it was Chris Paul's hands. might have been campaign. might have been somebody else. And so that's the way it should be. It should be Suns' ball. However, the way the league officiates the last two minutes is different than everything else, and it probably would have been that way. So I know there were people who, like, and I said, why wasn't there a review? And people like, it's rigged and all that. No, it's not rigged. And maybe the ref was just so confident that he sought correctly. Yeah. That and want- the
0: last two minutes report today did confirm that that was the correct call.
1: Yeah so it was a little bit weird that they didn't review it but... Well, or
0: actually you know i don't i think they said it was confirmed that there wasn't like incontrovertible evidence to overturn it
1: <laughs> okay um and so yeah technically I mean,
0: correct the best kind of correct
1: best kind of correct and so i i mean yeah i i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be like oh this this is a it's a crime against humanity because there wasn't one extra replay review but i also do completely understand why clippers fans are agreed because they've been reviewing everything they didn't review that one and it very easily could have gone the other
0: way well now that we've spent as much time discussing those last two minutes as they took in real time let's turn to milwaukee and atlanta and before we do that though i just want to tell you guys that sports business classroom is going to be back which is really exciting. I will be a guest lecturer there. I will not be teaching the entire time because my sister is getting married right at the end of that. So that obviously takes precedence, but I will be there. You get a chance to learn from me, Larry Kuhn, and uh, all of the other luminaries uh, involved there. And it's actually going to happen live in person, August 9th through 14th. You can use the code CAPSPACE for $200 off sportsbusinessclassroom.com. We'll be telling you more about that at some point in the future. But if you've been wanting to go, get in there right now. You can get uh, the Early bird discount. And you can use that cap space code to get two hundred dollars off. So let's get to this Atlanta Milwaukee game now. And um, I mean, it was pretty simple to me. Trey Young injured his ankle, stepping on the referee, right ankle sprain at right at the end of the third quarter, and he came back in and he was really limited. The Bucks went back to the switching that worked great in game one. The Hawks, partially because they didn't have Clint Capella out there, but also because I think the Bucks just cleaned things up, couldn't score. Trey was really their only guy who was gonna beat someone one-on-one. You know, they had to go to like Gallo in the post and like John Collins in the post and Herter trying to work one on one, and they just don't have the guys who can beat that. And so they held him to 17 in the fourth, and then Chris Middleton went crazy with 20 points in the fourth and the other end.
1: Yeah, I think that those are those are two of the big ones, and I don't want to lose track of Middleton. I think we'll talk about that at length. There's a there's a third one for me, and we talked about this at the time. Was in that first half, it was a tie score at halftime, 56 all. The Hawks were 10 of 22 from three and the Bucks were three of 14 yeah and so you're like okay you know and remember the hawks won game one and neither team could hit a three but in many ways i think that's actually advantage hawks just because the bucks have a bunch of good shooters and depending on some of the actions they're running second half largely fueled by middleton bucks are eight for 15 from three score 57 points the hawks are five for 15 so the hawks shot better from three overall in the game but you know regression to the mean it carried it and the bucks fueled by middleton's excellence won it won it by double technically double digits
0: yeah, and it wasn't really close down the end. Yeah, I thought what some of the key stretches, obviously the one in the fourth, the Hawks actually led this 95-88 and the Bucs closed it out on a 28-7 run to run to win it by 11. Now again, I mean, I thought, even though Middleton was going pretty crazy in the fourth, and hey, you know what? That's a, a limitation of this Hawks team too, by the way, that you've got Trey Young, Kevin Herter, Bogdan Bogdanovich, Danilo Gallinari all out there at the end. Yeah, you know, Chris Middleton isn't the greatest ISO scorer ever. He can get very hot. He got going with uh, some open threes in transition and then, uh, you know, started hitting some really difficult ones down the end. But they don't have anyone to guard Chris Middleton either, right? Like, Middleton nope. did struggle in game one, but... uh you know, like Kevin Herter is not a playoff caliber wing defender. And you know, the, the Hawks have had a very lucky stretch here that they haven't even had to face anyone as good as Chris Middleton yet. And Chris Middleton to me is probably below average for a ISO score, perimeter ISO score on a contender. So you know, that's definitely a limitation of this team. Um, you know, it didn't help also that there was a lot of Trey and Lou Williams, although Nate McMillan did try to get Herter back into the game, and there was about a three-minute period without a stoppage, which was a big part of where the Bucks came back. He had to call a timeout, which was, which in retrospect was probably a good idea because they were getting trucked. But it was one of his last two timeouts, so he only got yeah, with five oh five
1: with the five oh five to go just after the Bucks yeah. had taken the lead on guess what a Chris Middleton three. Um, yeah, so Mid- Middleton
0: had a, had a six stretch where I think he had three threes in a row sandwiched around a uh fast break layup.
1: Yeah, he had three threes and a step back two during that time. And Middleton during the fourth quarter, twenty points on eight of thirteen, and almost all of it was jump shots. Middleton during that time, he was seven of ten on jumpers, didn't get to the free throw line at all, and was one of three in the restricted area. So, and Middleton was getting to his spots. It didn't really matter who was on me. Did that did a step a step back on John Collins, which was impressive. Also also took advantage of some of the ineffectiveness in the hawks transition defense he got got a couple baskets that way and middleton was excellent we kind of wondered when he was going to have those games in the series and they they needed him to have to have a stretch and he absolutely did
0: yeah total line for him 42 minutes 38 points six of 12 from three Eleven rebounds, seven assists, four turnovers, and I thought his passing actually was huge. Because remember, at the beginning of the game, the Hawks uh, were going crazy. What was their lead like right at the start? It was they fifteen were up to two, 10, right? Yeah, uh, it was 15 yeah, to fifteen two. to two, right at the beginning. Um, you know, it looked like it could just go totally sideways for the Bucks at that point in time. Giannis gets his second foul, and uh, they were missing some shots. They weren't getting good looks right at the beginning. And I'll credit Mike Budenholzer; I thought he handled Giannis's foul trouble pretty well. Where he said, "Hey, you know what? Like it's fifteen to two here." we can't take Giannis out of the game with two fouls like we we can't let ourselves just get run out of the gym here without him and maybe that wouldn't happen anyway but he actually kept Giannis in I think he took him out you know once it got to be like 25 to 12 where it was like okay at least you know they were still down by the same amount but they at least had started playing with him and the situation had stabilized a little bit and he came back with him uh to start the second and he ended up uh, playing his full complement, 41 minutes uh, and finished with four fouls so I thought that situation was managed pretty well
1: And that that runs in direct juxtaposition to John Collins, who I thought that Nate McMillan was too conservative with Collins. He picked up his fourth and basically then didn't play for a full quarter. Right, Right
0: at the start of the third. Although, you know, the Hawks were largely playing well, I thought, in that third quarter. So there wasn't, maybe he would have brought him back if they hadn't been playing as well during that period. Um, Trey was unbelievable through the first three quarters. I think he had 32 points. Uh, now the Bucks still have totally shut down his assist game. He only had four assists, but he had very few turnovers, uh, in the, that first part of the game. I think he only had one through, through most of the third quarter was, was when I looked at it. And then, you know, obviously he sprained the ankle and that was, that was a big problem. Bogdanovich played more minutes in this game maybe that was in part due to the fact that collins didn't play as much and while he looked slightly more spry uh, it was a disaster for him uh, offensively again
1: yeah i mean bogdanovich has he sometimes has more that he needs to do just because if if is if limited or trey's out or because they're at times the bucks were trapping and he just couldn't make anything i mean bogdanovich one for five in the paint and then t- to on top of that, 2 for 10 from 3. So that's 3 for 16 overall, which
0: is brutal. Yeah, and- his, his shot selection is like pretty bad but then even the good ones he's taking he's not really making either
1: whereas like i thought that gallinari did a better job especially in the early going picking his spots and you know was had had some mismatches on drew holiday and was able to get to either a a kind of a fadeaway that holiday couldn't really contest or to something closer to the basket which i thought looked nice he was able to do that collins had collins had some nice stretches as well as he i mean he's been hitting mid-rangers he's been hitting a lot of i i just like what he can do and then yes and yet, the 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 Hawks were outscored by ten points in Andyecko Kongwu's minutes. I thought he played very well. He continues to impress me. Had a really nice defensive play. He had a couple of them. One where he just stole the ball from Giannis. They ended up calling it a jump ball, and Giannis quick tipped it. And then Akongwu had a play where he content- blocked one shot and contested another. Had an opportunistic play where he broke to the free throw line to get to get. I think that was a pass from Capella, which was really nice. And so I continue to like Akongwu.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't have been from Capella because those guys never played. Again. but
1: yeah it um, wouldn't have been maybe it was from john collins then
0: so yeah i've liked what i've seen from him defensively i think his future is pretty bright and you know perhaps we'll get to a point where we're like hey should they trade capella capella oh four from the foul line by the way did have six offensive rebounds did you agree with not having capella out there at the end that they i think they might have had hill a little bit but i think it was mostly bogdanovich young herder gallo and collins in the fourth well, quarter
1: i mean the fourth quarter especially when trey was more limited after injuring his ankle they needed all the offense they could handle and they weren't going to stop the bucks too much anyway so i think you have to that that's the time that you push the tie loo button that you go for your offense and see what you can make happen and they still didn't get enough that was a 17 point quarter for atlanta but that was the right choice
0: yeah i mean maybe offensive rebounding would have been the their best hope but uh i mean they couldn't get good shots against the switching defense in game one and then you know they might have given them a little bit more of a chance defensively with capella out there but i think th- they felt like they needed to spread the floor but the problem was they couldn't even get by their man to begin with to get penetration and force help and kick out to the spacing that they had with that group and they were just so limited uh, with uh, trey's issues and I'll credit Budenholzer again, you know, game two, they really didn't do any of the switching at all. Obviously that was in the first, they did a little bit with Portis. And Portis got lit up for a brief section in the first half of game two, which obviously didn't end up mattering. And Brook Lopez was unbelievable in game two. But then Trey, I thought, was getting enough three-pointers up, and he was 6 of 14 from downtown in this game. Also, I, I want to say he hit like pretty much almost all of his floaters before he got hurt as well. He I mean, really was in the midst of a wonderful game. and so bud tried up some different things first he went with bobby portis switching because uh, the well actually i'll I'll say this first i thought the hawks countered which i'd been waiting for them to do since the philly series against the big center but they countered by just setting the screen for trey all the way up at half court and so that meant that either lopez had to get too far out on the floor Uh, trey had like one blow by against him and got to the rim and got an and one um or trey was able to kind of get into that three-pointer or get ahead of steam going at lopez so the adjustment to that first they put in portis to do some switching that actually worked surprisingly well i thought the hawks didn't have a good approach against that Trey hit a few bomber threes but also like just they weren't trying to drive Portis get into the paint force help kick out for open threes which is really what I was hoping that they would do more of they did shoot well from three in the first so they did some of that and then they actually went to when Capella was setting the screen and they had Portis or Giannis out there they actually started trapping Trey all the way up against the half court line and said all right you want to throw it to Clint Capella on the roll 35 feet from the hoop like go ahead and, and be our guest and they weren't really able to do much with that and then they went with the switching but with their five best switching guys with Portis out of the game uh, in the fourth quarter and the Hawks really had no answer to that and I'm not really sure other than having Trey Young beat his man what the answer to that is they don't really have another option
1: well and full credit to the Bucs from a team perspective and especially P.J. Tucker but I mean content a few other guys too for being effective on the glass defensive glass for stretches like P.J. Tucker just was flying around going after every defensive rebound and also I mean Milwaukee ki had a 37 percent offensive rebound rate in this game, despite spending less time with centers than they have in some other ones, and they were they were attacking the glass, and Atlanta wasn't really making them pay too much in transition, especially in the later part when Trey Young couldn't move super well, and so I th- I thought that was a huge part of it because the Bucks didn't have the advantage in the possession game from turnovers, which they did in game two, and so instead they got a little bit of one there, and then you know about even in threes, and one team made more of their twos.
0: So uh, all this said, I mean we're talking about the strategy and and trey being injured i mean this is yet another series that just sucks now because of injuries right i mean the hawks full credit to them for even like making it as competitive as they have with Bogdanovich and hunter so limited and reddish who maybe would have been part of their group uh, not being able to do much but now with Trey Young injured I mean this is like Trey Young I still you know, I don't know if I'm going to have him as a top 10 player when we do this next year we'll see how next season goes you know I think Giannis is basically the only guy that we had in our top 10 in the playoffs Kawhi Leonard's out on the other side obviously g- injured and so, you know, Suns versus Bucks. I mean, those are two pretty good teams. You know, I think they'll they'll give us a high quality finals. But I mean, the talks team that like, you know, kind of, you know, they earned it, but also didn't play the highest quality opponents coming into this. And then like they have their best player now is going to be hobbled. I mean, it just, it, it sucks, man. Like we're not watching conference finals level of basketball. Um, And, you know, who, who knows why it is that this has happened. It could just be bad luck this time I mean you know Trey Young spraining his ankle on an official on the sideline I mean I'm not here to tell you that that happened because we had a 72 game regular season in four months like that's you can't draw that connection so I don't know if there's anyone to blame here other than fate But, you know, some of the others, like, you know, the Bogdanovich kind of wear and tear injury, you know, maybe that's one that you can point to a a little bit more. So, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, Trey has shown some ability to heal pretty quickly from ankle issues in the past. They have, the next game is two days from now. We're going to do it for the NBA cast on Hot Mike. But, you know, if he's not a hundred percent they just aren't going to be able to score well enough I don't think in this series and particularly also with Bogdanovich hobbled and, and Lou Williams pretty ineffective in this series and herder came back to earth in this one it's just you don't on both offense and defense they just don't have the quality of perimeter play that you need to score against this Bucks defense you know we haven't talked about Giannis much at all offensively. What did you think of his night?
1: I thought it was pretty good overall. He was a part, um though. Actually, I don't think he was the biggest part of Milwaukee doing something that worked so well in Game Two, which was if anybody contested a perimeter shot, then that player, especially if they were bigger, would just go straight down the court. And Middleton, yeah. that's how he got a bunch of his assists. Middleton they, they
0: killed them with
1: that. Annihilated the them, and so and Giannis. Did that, but then the other thing that Giannis was doing was he wasn't suffering fools in terms of their the the very limited help to de- defense and so there were times especially when Collins was at center where he was just tearing through every single Hawk player and he knew that there was nobody who could come with help that would be there and so Giannis in this game one of the kind of calibrators that I think is useful for Giannis is the proportion of his shots that are in the restricted area I used to do paint versus jump shots but it's even honestly because of what many of his floaters are more like those kind of fadeaway shots that can be kind of tough Giannis in this game 15 shots in the restricted area, six shots away from the restricted area. And that's a fantastic ratio. He was nine to 15, tricked a couple of layups, but generally I thought he did very well there. And, you know, had a couple of ugly missed free throws on his way to a six of 13. But unlike Ben Simmons, like he's still trying it. He's still going for it. He's still, you know, yeah. being a part of his offense other than arguably in the last couple of minutes when they're doing intentional fouls. But that's okay. Like that's, you know, you can you can Yeah, there the was down. one
0: pretty hilarious play like when Chris Middleton was getting trapped up near half court I mean they were up 10 at this point and Giannis was wide open and Chris Middleton was like no, I'm gonna take a timeout instead of throwing it to him. <laughs> Such a nice teammate.
1: Um, and also, well, we I mean, have I don't we, know.
0: Maybe that's maybe that was the right move. And
1: Giannis but, is. Um, I mean, I don't think that his defense in this game was as like insanely important. Like, I thought he did well. Well, but, well like, but his ability
0: to switch was huge.
1: Right, his ability to switch was huge, and the ability to have a big, you know, a big who who can to protect the rim, who can also handle some of those matchups. Like that's something they don't have in any of their other guys. Like sometimes you lose track of like the stars have to be able to work in a switching defense to have it actually. Thrive, and so I thought that was good. And also, like because of the excellence of Chris Middleton, and because maybe that you say the Trey Young injury was part of it too. Drew Holiday had a rough game. I would say to some extent on both ends of the floor. I thought his defense was yeah. okay, but he, you know, after we said this was a really good series for him, and he's had some stronger performances, had trouble finishing around the basket, was getting taken advantage of a couple times by Gallinari, and Holiday ended up being two of eleven from the field. But he was, you know, a part of the team concept was was a key part of the switching and it wasn't like his misses were killing their offense
0: yeah and he had some good passes 12 assists uh, some of those hit ahead passes in transition to the guys posting up after they challenged a a jump shot and that that's obviously something that the Hawks need to clean up and you know when Trey Young takes a shot against even if it's against Drew Holiday frankly like he's a lot of times he's taking a deep three he's the only one who's back they go for the offensive rebounds they don't get it and Whether it's against Giannis, you know, there's one play where Giannis just dunked all over Lou Williams. It's like, what the fuck is Lou Williams supposed to be able to do against Giannis? You know, Portis would challenge a shot and run the floor, get a deep post up. He he was at a wonderful offensive game uh, with 15 points, 7-12 in 17 minutes and so that's something that they have to clean up i mean i think the solution just needs to be that they need a punt on the the offensive glass that was not as uh, lucrative for them as it was in game one but yeah it, all, it all, ultimately it all comes down to just needing trey young to be healthy and they they found a few things late in the third where trey uh was they were setting some small small pick and rolls and at the moment they would try to switch trey would just jack the three and so they'll have to do kind of more of that as well i think trey just generally needs to attack immediately you know as we've talked about so many times again switching attack immediately when the switch occurs don't back out don't dance break the paint make a pass you know they got to get him back more as a a playmaker but i mean it does have a feel i mean now we we felt this was the case after game three too uh but you know it kind of feels like the bucks are are in control here um and we'll see whether the hawks can can scrape it out uh, or not in game four but trey will have to of course healthy all right welcome back and you know who has been in the news quite a bit lately that is the dallas mavericks and we're going to talk about their offseason but we should begin here just with the news that nico harrison and jason kidd are going to be a new executive and coach it's unclear exactly what harrison's role will be whether he is going to have ultimate authority or not on the one hand there's news that he has been pursued for other jobs
1: well the, the way that I, yeah. the way that shams trani described it is that he'll be the general manager and run basketball operations so as we know from the mavericks running basketball operations and being the final decider are not always the same thing and not always the same right. thing for every decision that will yeah, be
0: and uh, uh the pod with uh mcmahon and windhorses and uh Bontemps that came out last night is a pretty good and they talked about this pretty extensively and you know of whether harrison is it, and michael finley are sort of going to be pretty close to one another in terms of authority uh you know whether mark cuban how involved he's still going to be i mean the consensus seems to be he's going to be pretty involved and that's why you know there wasn't someone coming from another team as experience but it also seemed like harrison was in demand everyone seems to love him he's Supposedly was a finalist, uh, according to McMahon, for the Spurs uh, when they ended up hiring Brian Wright. And just in terms of what his background is you I might mean, say all right a shoe executive i think he's like vice president of basketball operations in north america so pretty high up at nike and most of the players obviously who work there know him he has a relationship with luca who apparently uh you know getting luca with jordan brand was, was part of something that, that he did however he also is involved in talent evaluation obviously if you're giving out shoe contracts you would like to know who the good players are going to be going forward now that's not salary cap stuff that's you know how much analytics are involved there at not making trades with other teams but he seems like really a relationship builder and then with him in concert with kid it seems like those guys are kind of a package deal and whether they wanted jason kid and then wanted an executive who wanted jason kid or what the story was it seems like to me the point of all of this is just to rebrand the organization so they a so luca is happier there but b so that they are more palatable to free agents
1: yeah, it's, it's an interesting gamble for the Mavericks. I, I like the way Nate Jones described um, May, uh, described Harrison's role, which was that he decided which players Nike pursues and which ones they elevate. And those are two important ev- evaluation factors. Now, as you said, they're not tethered to the same thing. You know, you can recruit a guy if he's under contract with another basketball team, if he's a shoe free agent, or if he's close to being a shoe free agent. I don't know the tampering, I don't think there are tampering rules in that specific context. Uh, and it's it's hard because so we, we It's hard to know for us, like who Harrison chose to advocate for elevation and who he didn't, you know, like all those decisions are are challenging. It's easier for us to evaluate Jason Kidd as a head coach because Jason Kidd has been a head coach before and it has not been to pronounce success. You and I memorably picked Jason Kidd and were discussing at length why we had him as the worst coach in the NBA. Both of us separately and agreeing at the exact moment that the Milwaukee Bucks fired him. And you can see part of the ripple effects and the limitations of Jason Kidd in juxtaposition with his replacement, where Mike Budenholzer. Yes, they changed the talent and improved it somewhat, but. It was a lot of similar players, and they went from being fighting for a potential playoff spot to being one of the best regular season teams in the NBA almost immediately. And Brook Lopez helped, to be sure, but a lot of the other things, and got more out of Giannis. Giannis wins two MVPs in very quick succession. And a part of why I'm very dubious of Kidd as the coach here is that one of the things that I thought he did incredibly poorly with the Bucks was... Figuring out the best approach for a team with an unusual skill set. Like, you know, Giannis was a little bit different, and you know, they had to work with Middleton. The the point guard situation for the Bucs was has been weird for a while. And while Luca, I think, is more plug-and-play because he's this heliocentric ball handler, Kristaps Porzingis is somebody that you need to work with offensively and defensively because he does certain things very well and does certain things incredibly poorly.
0: Yeah, obviously a big source of angst with the Bucs was the Bucs playing too aggressive of a pick and roll defense style and just giving up a ton of corner threes, a ton of shots at the rim and obviously you saw what the team could be defensively once mike budenholzer came in and yeah again brooke lopez over thon maker is a bit of an upgrade at the time but also worth noting that brooke lopez came there on like a three million dollar contract to start for them we didn't think he was going to be really that good and obviously budenholzer has gotten a, a lot out of them and you know that's something to remember too in the mike budenholzer story as we try to kill him that hey they wouldn't be a number one seed if it wasn't for him uh, to begin with uh number three seed this year but obviously still kind of the same sort of team so kid's coaching record is not amazing now earlier in his bucks tenure they did become the number two defense uh in his first year in 2015 they had a ton of shooting luck that year and things uh, of course degraded after that and it is year in brooklyn as well i think he you know despite the tyshawn taylor hit me get an extra timeout incident which was preposterous they still found a way after disappointing early on with that group they found a way to play pretty well going into 2014 and actually win a a game seven on the road and gave a decent series to Miami then before that team broke up and Kidd obviously forced his way out and that's another thing too that Jason Kidd palace intrigue always seems to follow him including even with the, the Mavs, where he committed to return there as a player and then ended up going to New York in 2012, supposedly. That has been smoothed over, one would think so, if he's now going to be the, the head coach. But uh, there does uh, there is a reason why uh, the Kittlefinger thing started. But uh, also, we will try to be fair to kids. Clearly, this would not be the hire that I would have. I think having seen as much of him as we did as a coach, I would want to give someone else a chance. But A- Players really seem to respect Jason Kidd. That's who Damian Lillard said on the record that he wanted in Portland. And now it appears, obviously, Kidd withdrew from that because it would appear he had an inkling a that portland didn't want him or b that he was going to get this job which is a way better one than uh the silas in portland so and, and then the other thing you can say too is a he's had a chance to evolve as a coach he's been in a, a really good defensive system in la and we've seen other coaches who have evolved in future stops so you don't want to rule that out completely
1: you don't. And I mean, Monty Williams has been a much better coach, head coach in Phoenix than he was previously in New Orleans. Um, and Nate McMillan. Yeah, Terry
0: Stotts is another Stotts. one who had a couple of stints in Milwaukee and Atlanta. didn't work out. And then Spent time under Rick Carlisle, and then had a very good stint in Portland.
1: Yeah, and there's also some concern. I mean, with Jason Kidd's um, history with the, I mean, with the domestic violence um, allegations. I believe there's there was a plea there as well, and the Mavericks' recent history with organizational dysfunction. To put it lightly, there's a little there's there's definitely a concern there, and I want to acknowledge that. Yeah. The other uh, ha-
0: wrapped his car around a telephone pole on on Long Island, drunk driving too.
1: That's true. Um, but so I think. To me, the uh, the way to kind of shift this to the offseason is part of why you bring in Nico Harrison and Jason Kidd is the relationships that they have with players. And that is a combination that is more potent the more flexibility a team has. And that raises a couple of questions. So one is that the questions that Dallas has in terms of the 21 offseason, but also the possibility that maybe they try to play this a little differently. And Dallas could, if they're depending on how they approach this offseason they could also theoretically be players in 2022 Luka will get a huge raise whether he signs an extension or not and He's cap hold is $30 million. So it actually doesn't make that much of a difference. You know, it does make some, but if Dallas doesn't spend this year, they could, if they moved a little bit of stuff, they could make some noise in 22. And the reason why that matters is in terms of free agent classes, 2021 is dispiriting. You know, they, it seems like they saved their money potentially for Giannis. Giannis isn't there and he extended with the Bucks. So that is one of the key decisions that Harrison and presumably Michael Finley and Mike Cribben are going to have to make is what is, what is the, like immediate term and then the near term as well like how do they want this to play out because you probably can only choose one or the other yeah
0: that's a a great point to make in terms of their space right now they've got i have them projected at 23.8 million dollars in space the only real variable there is I guess there are two variables there. One is the $4.1 million team option of Willie Cauley-Stein, which I imagine they will decline unless they just re-sign all their own free agents and stay over the cap. And then Josh Richardson, player option of $11.6 million. I project that he will opt in. I don't think he's gonna get that annual value on the market, but he could easily opt out because he's just, hey, I don't wanna play 10 minutes a game in the playoffs. And if I stay here another year, my market value is gonna go down even further. The Mavs also could have a trade lined up for him potentially as well but i think that's and if they if richardson decides to move on or they can trade him away for nothing then they get up to 34 million in cap space and that's that's basically uh above the seven to nine year max any player they realistically could sign uh other than kyle lowry kyle lowry actually technically would be eligible for more um the bigger problem there is
1: just that there aren't max caliber players in this free agent class um this
0: this just in yeah (laughs) i mean well well, well so, so hear hear me out here though uh i, I mean i think i, I agree I, I would be very loath right now to make a move that could compromise 2022 particularly again with this idea of like this harrison kidd combo now uh you know if jason kidd coaches this team into the ground next year then maybe they're not as as sexy a destination in 2022 but in theory 2022 could be a big free agent year you've got i mean I'm not saying that any of these guys are like likely to come but you got kd irving and james harden you've got jimmy butler up you've got zach levine potentially up as of now now all these guys are extension eligible uh you've got christopher paul <laughs> yes uh They're Bradley sure. bradley chris bradley paul bradley would be beal as eligible this year too i'm yeah. sorry
1: bradley beal potentially
0: yeah bradley beal i mean that that's a big one obviously at uh, would love his fit with Luka Doncic. Uh so yeah, there are definitely uh Julius Randle, I think actually wouldn't be a terrible fit uh, with Doncic either. You've got uh, that's probably I mean it.
1: Steph Curry <laughs> potentially?
0: Oh man, wow, that would be that would be crazy. Yes, Steph Curry, you're right. Um so and and I but I think the problem that they have in because it seems like now, especially with extensions, the salary cap having caught up and not being rising anymore, that extensions are pretty much available for most of these guys to sign. And so Maybe we aren't going to see as many players getting to free agency. That was kind of the lesson of this last summer when this was supposed to be this great offseason and everyone extended. Trading for guys doesn't really seem like the Mavs are going to have a competitive offer for that. Everyone's talking about Porzingis. He doesn't have the value to be a centerpiece of that type of a trade. And the Mavs are, do not have their first round pick this year. It goes to New York. They do also owe a top 10 protected pick in 2023 to the Knicks. So you know they they could bust out the the full Paul George package outside of that one pick going forward. Uh, that pick is top ten protected through twenty twenty five. But you imagine with if Lucas are on that top ten protection, a team will say we're we're not that worried about that. Or they could always just uh, potentially unprotect that to the Knicks, who would likely play ball, you would think, and then uh, you know that would open up your ability to trade twenty five and twenty seven. So they can only trade at, as of this year. They can only trade two first round picks and obviously they can uh trade as many swaps as they want to but they don't really have anyone else other than maybe josh green maybe jalen brunson if they opt him in uh or or uh, which they will i mean it's not an option it's a a a non-guarantee so and that guarantees before the free agency so so yeah well so just to finish up there so that it's i think it's got to be free agency has got to kind of be the way that they get the second star because porzingis frankly hasn't worked
1: out as that before we before we lose it on brunson i just want to mention this this is a nuance that a couple of teams have gotten really right but the mavericks got wrong which is since Brunson is a non guarantee and this will be his fourth NBA season, that means Brunson is extension eligible, you know, coming into this offseason, but he also will be an unrestricted free agent. They cannot, because it was not structured as a team option, as as far as I've seen it from you know Eric Pincus and everybody else. That means you cannot make Jalen Brunson a restricted free agent. You can't retain him any other way. And so that makes it a riskier proposition. We saw Monte Morris get a lucrative deal in a somewhat similar situation. Um, but again, that ties in that deal would kick in any extension would be for twenty two twenty. 23 uh so that's worth
0: and i would not want to extend him uh, particularly i mean maybe you could do it unless it's just he comes so cheap but because a didn't play very well in the playoffs but b also he'll his cap hold is just going to be the minimum right and you don't even have to worry about like the starter criteria or any of that because he won't be a restricted free agent so and you'll have full rights right yeah you could pay him whatever you wanted to off of that minimum cap hold yeah, so and then going ahead to 22 23 I and mean, we're spending a lot of time on this but uh you've got if they w- wanted to you know luca's going to be making he, he's going to sign that extension you got to sign him to that extension you don't really gain anything either by it because uh, by waiting uh with uh, to try to use his low cap hold because it bumps up to pretty much close to the max anyway because he's such a high pick um they've got kleba non-guaranteed for nine million so they as of now and then the finney smith you'd think they'd want to resign would have a cap hold to 7.6 million but if you knock both of those off if you wanted to that's within their fully within their control uh then you get to 22 million in space but uh they could stretch or move the 11 million of Dwight Powell for that year and then Porzingis at that point would have two years left at 34 million and 36 again they might if they really had to get off of him you know you wouldn't want to stretch him that would be just such a massive amount of money but if they really wanted to get off of him maybe they could do that by giving up a pick at that point depending on how he's playing and then of course you move on from him and and you basically just got Luka and just space for this other star to come in but you'd obviously have to sell that that star on having some guys around but if you had Brunson and Finney Smith and maybe you could hold on to Kleba and you move on from Powell and Porzingis Then you could have like 50 million or so in space for for next year, but it still is difficult. I mean, you're you'd have to make some moves to get up to having that space. Maybe a sign and trade could be involved as well. But to me, I mean, when you're looking at the long term future of this group, I think this year has kind of shown Luca and Porzingis and some guys good guys. They developed some guys, but Luke and Porzingis and some guys does not a contender make. And so they need another guy, another major player in there. They don't really have the trade assets because of the pick, the trades they made for porzingis and they're not going to be able to make a trade like that until you know i think they could throw in for three first round picks as of the 2022 draft you could make right. a trade with three first round picks um yeah, because so, then, but, once
1: they yeah. pick once basically once they make that pick then the stepion rule no longer applies
0: right and then you could also trade your 2029 pick after that draft as well so you could uh or, or you could trade 2028 so yeah that's
1: uh well and so but i want to yeah. i want to emphasize one point you brought up the the 2022 concept and the mavericks know this as well as almost anybody that there is a real risk and opportunity cost of going that approach you are foregoing potential uses of multi-year signing multi-year contracts this off season. you're also potentially you know gi- giving up some of the good players on your team right now even if they're not the best player because luca is going to be around players like dorian finney smith or moxie kleba like they're hard to replace like we've seen that throughout and it's it's a real challenge and so and I mean, Dallas, some of the players that they, you know, didn't sign along, that they didn't try to use their cap space, go after long-term contracts over the last couple of years, they could have helped them. And instead they, you know, maybe they could have gotten in on Danny Green or Robert Covington or some of these other guys who would have really helped them. And they got Seth Curry and, and that worked out actually pretty well. And then they traded him for Josh Richardson, yeah. which didn't work out as well. We thought it would, but it didn't. And so that is a very big bet. And in a lot of circumstances, I would advise teams not to do it because it's unlikely Dallas doesn't have they're not the Lakers or some one of these teams that has a hit or Miami of a team that has a history of wooing star level talent from other teams however just like came up a little bit when we were talking about the Ben Simmons idea at the end of that series the rules are different when you have somebody at the caliber of Luka because Luka could be the best player on a championship team and he he might be there now he could be there very soon if he's not and that's when you you owe it to your to your that player and to your team to give yourself a chance And if, and I don't. I agree with you. I don't think this group is good enough right now. There aren't that many ways for Dallas to get there because of what they sacrificed in many ways to get there. And also, they just don't have a ton of graph capital because the team is good now. So that is going to be. So it's it's a risky proposition, and I want to emphasize that. But yeah. I do think it's worthwhile for them.
0: But and also, here's what I would say as well. This to me, this free agent market is so limited that if you wanted to just overpay for a couple of guys on a one year deal, I don't think you're that much worse in 21 22 than if you say signed some other guys for at market rate to say a four-year deal uh and i think there's uh, now especially if they can get to that 34 million moving on from richardson now you have some holes at that point right because we haven't even mentioned the name of tim hardaway jr yet who right I mean, a lot of people were tweeting as he was going off early in that Clippers series about, you know, how he's going to get a big bag and he's going to want 20 million a year. I would be particularly for this team, more so for this team, even than for some other teams, I'd be very loath to pay Tim Hardaway Jr. a big deal at, you know, three or four years in particular. Now, maybe he could fit into this conception of you know a big one-year balloon deal but i would i would be looking for bigger fish to fry than tim hardaway jr and so again all the usual names are going to be out there kyle lowry mike conley you know spencer dinwiddie is is an interesting one as well dinwiddie is at 28 is younger now do you feel like with dinwiddie porzingis and luka Doncic? Is that a group that you would feel comfortable going forward with? Would you give Spencer Dinwiddie a long-term deal? Would Spencer Dinwiddie be willing to take, you know, a one-year $25 million deal uh, to, to come to this team, but also try to build up his value as the starter? How would Luka Doncic fit with another point guard? I think in terms of a basketball fit, Dinwiddie, hes his three-point shooting has been a little bit disappointing the last couple of years that he's been healthy. That's also because he's had to take a lot of shots off the dribble. As a spot-up guy, he might look better. Um, they clearly need someone else. Who can attack off the dribble in the playoffs? I mean, Luca just you can't expect him to have a 45% usage and and win in the playoffs. Maybe they could have done it against a team other than the Clippers. That was obviously a bad matchup for them, but you're trying to get into championship contention here. So Dinwiddie is an okay fit. I think you know he's pretty good defensively. Lowry but, to me is the best fit of, of anybody in the free agent market.
1: Before we move on from Dinwiddie, I want to bring up one potentially notable data point. And so if you go back to the 1920 season, the last close to full season that Spencer Dinwiddie Dinwiddie played. Dinwiddie shot 31% on three-pointers that year. You say 31%, that's not good enough to play with Luka. And true. However, Spencer Dinwiddie shot 28% on four-pointers pull-up threes per game and 37 percent on 2.2 catch and shoot three pointers per game and he has a somewhat similar split if you go back the year before that and i think the year before that as well and so the idea is not that spencer dinwiddie will never shoot a pull-up three but if you shift those proportions and you make give dinwiddie a higher proportion of the shots that he is better at maybe he gets closer to that 35 36 range and he becomes a more viable fit off ball with luca
0: nope i i agree with you there now i I mean lowry as as far as like a one-year deal that makes I, I think a lot of sense because the other suitors for lowry probably can't pay him even in a sign and trade scenario like with the sixers for example they'll run into hard cap issues like they'll they'll have to pay him you know something along the lines of, of you know high teens and then maybe bumping up for for the next year whereas that you know would lowry be interested in one year 30 million with the math? uh would he rather stay in toronto for that type of that? type of a deal who knows what's going on in, in
1: toronto, would toronto it even right. offer it
0: right right i mean it seems like toronto is, would much rather sign and trade him at this point um but we'll see i mean he is a franchise legend there and and there could be a meeting in the minds once more we still have no idea what's going on with Masai, obviously and you could also bring back hardaway again i would go with the one year balloon deal where the idea of like hey let's give tim hardaway four years 75 million you yeah, know maybe in a vacuum he's worth that but again where are you going with tim hardaway jr who's you know he's a, a good shooter can score get to the room a little bit but uh, at age 29 is best this is probably a career year that he just had and just you know where are you going with tim hardaway on a long-term deal at that type of money as being paid like your third best player and so i i really and mike conley is another one right like they pursued him before conley would be an excellent fit next to luca because he's one of the best spot up shooting point guards at this point in time now you have big concerns about Conley's health but I mean I think they can certainly outbid the Jazz for this year in terms of how much they can pay and we'll see whether the Jazz you know are willing to go more than one guaranteed year I mean I think you would if you're the Mavs you probably want to go team option for a second year on these with like with a Lowry or a Conley and and, you know again maybe you offer that to Dinwiddie and he would consider taking it and there's kind of a trial period and either builds up his market and or you can bring them back because I think that's what I same as is the heat have for this year with guys like Dragic uh, and Iguodala where you can bring these guys back if you want um you know they could also look further down into the market for point guards like the aforementioned Dragic although they weren't interested in basically just taking Dragic for free in 2019 so that doesn't seem like a a big starter there
1: and another point on the Lowry Conley offers is that you're not only offering them a lot of money for the coming season you're also offering them a starting spot on a competitive team so this isn't this isn't just oh great you're going to be on a a team that sucks and and you know like get a lot of touches and rehab your value no like i mean Lowry and Conley are facing kind of they're towards the end of their basketball like the the livelihood of being a really good player on a really good team and so i think that could be intriguing for both them Conley's already on a really good team and Lowry TBD but that i think it's an interesting sales pitch but i think the idea of aiming high is a fascinating one for Dallas because you think about you know not going crazy on the years for those players you have a there's a strength that comes with knowing knowing exactly what what your thresholds are. And like, for example, I would not be going hard as Dallas... on that logic after somebody like john collins who has had a nice postseason but and could theoretically fit with dallas but he's not a good enough number two or number three to make it work similar story with duncan robinson or gary trent jr both of whom i like but just aren't the right fit for this specific team at this specific time
0: yeah and and so the other reason to me of like why you don't pay hardaway jr for a big long-term contract is they have the ability to really for these guys who you know maybe they're slightly worse than hardaway maybe they're not you know they give you maybe give you more defense maybe a little less shooting you know let's say so here's some names out there that maybe you could get on a one-year deal but you can outbid everyone else right uh you know nick batum right like he'll probably uh, maybe he'll have offers around the mid-level or the taxpayer mid-level at 32 i mean he looked he looked great you know get him in a on a deal where you, know, you can afford to maybe pay these guys you know one year 15 million something like that and maybe they there are guys who like that more than you know going for a mid-level but, deal for three years
1: by the way nick batum gives you an option for a smaller switchier lineup with so basically him and kleba and dory finney smith and luca and then you figure out the fifth beetle that gives you an option in case porzingis you know there's you have a real struggle there which i think would be really good for them to have having that other kind of player
0: yeah and so uh, danny green will be a free agent i'm like because that's the thing is they probably again you don't want to necessarily go out there on the years but you probably can outbid especially for some of these veterans you hopefully get your pick of you know reggie bullock Alec Burks. You know, are some of these guys like that much worse than Tim Hardaway? And you can you know, Alec Burks, what is what kind of contract is he gonna get? Uh you know, maybe you could uh and then the restricted guys, again, they're probably not really much of a chance there because If you don't want to go in the long-term, maybe the Mavs are thinking differently and maybe they want to give out long-term contracts. I just would not want to do that. Um, You know, or you could even like, you know, a Garrett temple type or something. It just, you're kind of three and D guys, or you get a a few of them in there. Trevor Ariza, Kelly Oubre could be an interesting fit there as well, where he's will be a better fit around Luca because he kind of doesn't really need to make decisions. He can just either catch and shoot or drive. Uh, based, uh, you, I haven't based you haven't
1: brought hope, up pj tucker yet
0: yeah that that would be another one uh, as well so they they will there will be some options for them i think that and i would both in terms of obviously preserving 2022 flexibility but also like i think you could even make yourself a better team in 2122 22 if you just split up that hardaway money and go in another direction yeah you may not be quite as explosive offensively at the top end but you know clearly they need to get better uh, uh on defense uh in terms of free agents for these guys you know we mentioned the collie stein team option they've still got White Powell around as well uh, only another 22 million owed to him and the Richardson thing will obviously be interesting Kleba they it seems pretty clear with the, he kind of wore down this year he had a, a pretty rough year but he's getting a little older also so I think he's someone who can be really valuable in the playoffs but you don't want to like wear him out during the regular season so getting some more big options in there would be helpful I don't know if they they're thinking that Josh Green is ready to step in yet like his shooting did not appear to be ready this year although he does he's had some athletic moments i'm hopeful that kid is going to try to get them to play in transition more than they have green could maybe be a, a part of that you know do they bring back boban just to, you know to kind of have another option it, he doesn't really seem like a kid type of player necessarily uh they also have finney smith eligible for a potential extension that's something that they'll have to consider uh, but i with finney smith's low cap hold i wouldn't necessarily want to do that either he only 7.6 million dollar cap hold for 22 so that's really i mean there's gonna be a lot to figure out for uh nico harrison and michael finley and mark cuban because of just how realistic dreams are in 2022 and they're not necessarily going to have the information as the mavs heat and raptors did not in the summer of 2021 or 2020 when they all tried to keep their space open for this year they won't necessarily have the information of who's extended and who hasn't but it does seem like some of these guys are not going to extend because the extensions are just so massive and so ugly, potentially for their teams,
1: or in certain circumstances, like it was a little bit different in twenty twenty because a lot of those players were in the places they definitely wanted to be long term. Anthony Davis, I think, is a great example of that. That it was a different co- decision for them than it will be for somebody like Bradley Beal. I don't know if Bradley Beal wants to be on the Wizards for another couple of years or Zach Levine. I mean, he has a challenging question. Butler is a little bit different, but the idea that a lot of the players in twenty twenty chose their spot in twenty one this offseason season will be a little bit different i think that's totally fair yeah i think we
0: need to talk about with these guys
1: i think i think that pretty much covers it. i think they'll listen on porzingis but this is not the high point in his value and that you know like in some ways if you want to be more ambitious in 2022 trading porzingis now makes that more difficult unless somebody gives you a really strong offer like if you could theoretically get off his you know like if you could get trade him for an expiring contract even if it was somebody that was mediocre if you're aiming high maybe you consider that also because the downside risk with Porzingis' injury history and everything else but i think it's more likely that porzingis recoups his value than like trading him for a worse player that makes less money now you can always make that move next year if you have to
0: yeah i certainly would try to engage the spurs and see if you could pry loose because the Spurs have cap space just to absorb them too it's just see what they their opinion is of his value and whether you could pry loose one of their young guys to get both cheaper and more athletic and move, move on from Porzingis at the same time. But, I, you know, I do think Porzingis in terms of his trade value is in a different place than, say, Ben Simmons is because, number one, the Mavs, there isn't necessarily a way for them to get way better by trading Porzingis whereas I think Philly by trading simmons could get better by trading simmons just to get a, a better fit around Embiid, and i think also porzingis yeah okay he could suffer another torn acl and then you're really in trouble there's that ticking time after spec. but in terms of his level of play you know i think there's not a chance that like oh the free throw shooting is going to mess him up so much like with simmons where it could get even worse um in terms of his value so i don't you know i think he's kind of i feel better about him being at a nadir at this point in his trade value and he also helps you win basketball games next year like he is a decent fit with Luca in the regular season and hopefully he can play a little bit better defensively as well and you know because he was very good in uh 1920 and he was good in the bubble before he got hurt and just what, and also he's pretty good when he's not going up against the Clippers they're gonna you know if they play the Suns or the Jazz or the Lakers Porzingis looks much more valuable as an offensive player but it you know I think I, I would certainly try to engage but I would want to try to just you know trade him into somebody's caps space and just get a lot cheaper would, would be my hope there uh in, in that conception that's why i mentioned the spurs um you know would the charlotte hornets be interested in what about like terry rosier of Crystal?
1: this is not exactly the most inspiring center market but i really would love to see a center that could run the floor with Lamelo, and it also that then you don't have any fluidity defensively like if you w- trade for Kristaps porzingis it is for a very specific defensive concept which can work but doesn't isn't guaranteed to work
0: yeah borrego has played to some zone as well i mean having that kind of spacing would would be nice uh, for Lamelo and company to work with
1: i mean that would be like porzingis the half court the half court offense would be amazing
0: porzingis is kind of of a you know a level of talent perhaps that charlotte has struggled to get and charlotte also i mean they don't have like the highest aspirations in the world um
1: and his sal- his contract timeline is actually pretty reasonable for them because gordon hayward is gordon hayward's contract runs the same length assuming porzingis picks up as his, his option and Lamelo wouldn't get his raise until the following year so you kind of get a run of play and see how things go and then you maybe set up the next the next generation
0: yeah and maybe if you're charlotte you, you, or if you're dallas You ask for Miles Bridges and probably end up you know are you okay with just getting Terry Rozier if you're like he would be a nice Hardaway replacement and also would be extension eligible they probably wouldn't want to extend it but he would give they would have bird rights on him they could just go back to him if 2022 doesn't work out I think he's better than Hardaway uh doesn't quite have as much size pretty similar level of shooters I would say so that that's a but he's only under contract for one year and Charlotte could make the unbalanced trade uh but I think that's the sort of conception I'd be looking for is like someone who's cheaper plays a, a different position um anything else on these guys I, I think we don't need to go through every single possible porzingis trade but the that's kind of the conception i might be looking at
1: yeah i think i think that's pretty good so instead we could talk about another team which has a a talented cornerstone, this time the current league MVP, and also, you know, different kind of flexibility moving forward, and that's the Denver Nuggets. And you and I have fixated on the Nuggets' kind of future, the logistics here for a couple of years now, and this is probably the offseason where the Cronkies' willingness to spend becomes an even larger focal point, and the reason why is because both Michael Porter Jr. and Aaron Gordon are eligible for extensions, And those extensions would run starting in 2022 while Jokic and Jamal Murray are already under contract.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, even even for this year, uh, they everything for this year has to keep in mind what the salary structure looks like going forward where you've got Jokic under contract for 33 million next year he will be eligible to sign the designated player veteran extension but is not eligible this summer because he doesn't have enough years of experience yet and but obviously 23 24 Nikola Jokic gonna be making over 40 million dollars Michael Porter Jr. on a presumed max we could talk about that a little bit I, I so having Porter Jr. Murray and Jokic on some massive contracts does that also leave room for Aaron Gordon to be a, on an extension or a, a new contract as a free agent in the summer of 2022 so you've got that in the future always looming over some of these decisions that they're going to make the other thing though is this year where Jamal Murray the Chris Haynes reported the earliest he could come back would be February of 2022 even that to me I wouldn't want to count on that it's been more like a year on these and we we're going to see this with a number of guys who got injured where the fact that the timeline is back to normal it's not just like oh he got hurt two months into the season last year so now he's going to come back two months into the season this year no it's much later on if i'm the nuggets i think you try to sort of triage for next year like they got to get another creator in there but i just i wouldn't want to go all in for next year because i just don't think that jamal murray is going to be at the level that you need him to be even if he does come back in the playoffs to really think about winning a championship so i like that that's just the reality of acl injuries he may prove us wrong but i think it's going to take until 22 23 before he's back that's why that injury obviously was so damaging it cost them potentially two playoffs but you know you need to make a go at it to some degree next year and so let's talk about what their financial situation is just for next year
1: sure so they have a number of pending free agents but so the kind of the the key decisions are going to involve and not all of the nuggets choice involve will Barton and Jamichael Green. So Will Barton has a player option worth 14.7 million, and Jamichael Green has a player option worth 7.6. If both of those players theoretically opted out and left, so this is kind of like because I I I think they're going to pick up PJ Dozier's non-guarantee based on his place within the organization. If basically those guys and all their free agents opted out and left, and this is just to get the pure number, the Nuggets would have about 33 million in cap space in, in spending power, not cap space in spending power, but below the the tax so that means and i assume that the tax is either a hard line or close to it for the nuggets and so that means for retentions and additions because that that's really what you have to work with the nuggets do not have much in the way of players under contract that they're that they could move to clear like they could clear a couple million maybe in a couple different moves but not that much so 33.5 to fill out the roster and add players who are going to be not only a part of your rotation but presumably start in at least some capacity because of morris is because like unless you want morris to fit in in the murray spot you know like you're going to need somebody else in the guard rotation so they don't have the biggest needs to fill when you think about Jokic and gordon and michael porter jr like they have a lot of good players but it's still not that much to like build a better team it's more to kind of keep things the way they are
0: yeah and, and green and barton with those player options how are you feeling about? About those, or whether they're going to take them or not.
1: Jamichael Green, it's interesting. I've always valued him more. It seems like than other G- than GMs do, um, but that's a kind of a, a reasonable salary, maybe a little bit high. I think that for him, it would be nice to secure a longer term offer green as a point of reference is this is his age 31 off season so yeah if you could get a three-year deal now great but jermichael green hasn't gotten that kind of deal in a while now so that might not that might not be possible will barton i'm sure he would love to opt out and get you know he's 30 to get that like last big deal and you know kind of like what i'm mean, not that they were the same age at the time but like what terrence ross got you know gets you know maybe it's maybe it's not as much money but four years you know secure secure that contract and Then wherever that is, you're you're going to be there whether you're starting or coming off the bench. But 15 million, you know, roughly in that range, those are going to be hard offers to come by when you think about how few teams have cap space, have spending power over the mid-level exception, and how many of those teams really want to go for somebody like Will Barton, especially for for a number of years. Like maybe somebody would do it for like we talked about Dallas potentially going after somebody for one year, but I don't. There, there isn't one of the cap space teams that I think is just a screaming fit for Will Barton.
0: No, I, I mean, I think probably your ideal scenario for the Nuggets is Green and Barton opt in. If they opt in, you've got 12 players under contract. We'll assume that they're going to guarantee PJ Dozier. Your free agents are Millsap and McGee. Uh, you know, I don't, maybe they still would need one of those guys to come back as like a, a backup front court man, but you're kind of running out of space below the tax there as well they don't particularly have like superfluous contracts that they could move on from and Bart I mean I think they need his playmaking and shooting he's a starting level of guard he's really struggled to stay healthy the last few years but they don't have anyone else really you know I mean probably Monte Morris and Barton are your starting one and two next year and then you've got Gordon Porter and Jokic up front maybe you could say all right you know Will if you opt out we'll give you a little bit more money for next year and same thing with Green. Your opt-out will, will give you a little bit of a raise just to, to come back if you don't have other great offers out there. But Barton, at his age, I mean, if he can get a long-term deal, he should, you know, even at the mid-level, he should probably take it, I would say, over over that $14.7 million. And Green, you know, who knows what his value is around the league. I did think that he's really kind of slipped defensively. Agreed. To, of late. Now, it would be nice to, it, once you start talking about that, I mean, you, you still need one more backup big. Maybe you could, I mean, you're going to just go there. The Hartenstein type of route, like they did last year, and just get a guy at the minimum to come in, and then try to get another guard. You do have Murray coming back at some point. They've got Kapazzo who's fine in the regular season. Also, they might just say, "Hey, Zeke Naji is going to be our backup center, and maybe we can get something out of Bull Bull." Now, I think Naji is pretty good. I mean, that actually might be my approach: is to just uh, you know maybe you get another a vet big uh, at the minimum, but it's a you know it's a pretty low level a guy, and you just say that Zeke Naji is going to be our backup center, and if Green still are on we can move on for Millsap we can do some more switching with Najee and Green on our second unit Najee's pretty looks like he's developing a pretty good shooter. like I like him I think he can be a rotation guy next year for them at least in the regular season so maybe you just try to focus in on the guard line uh you know I would love Patty Mills for this group
1: oh that would work. um
0: you know moving off the ball with Jokic good vet doesn't need to play that many minutes but they you know having a knockdown shooter from the perimeter would really help these guys george, george
1: hill could be an interesting fit too
0: yeah on the, on the partial guarantee we'll see where he ends up you know, I, I think it's to me it's more likely if if philly does a sign and trade he's probably gonna have to be in it and we'll probably have to get guaranteed so he may not be available uh I mean, Reggie Jackson would also be a really nice fit with these guys, I think. But you run into the problem that they're giving out multi-year contracts, again, because of this issue that they're going to have with Porter and then possibly Gordon in going into 22-23, you might be loath to do that because you're going to really have some big tax payments. And frankly, given what they probably have coming up here, particularly if they want to retain Gordon and also have the three max contracts as well, it probably isn't a good idea to pay the tax this year just because of what they have coming up these next few years where with Jokic and Murray and Porter like if you keep that core together like you're just you're going to be in the tax and those are the years you're most likely going to be contending going forward where if you ever are going to pay the tax I think that those would be the years not this year when Murray is probably not ready enough to be in championship contention this year anyway.
1: And so if we want to fast forward just briefly for to kind of visualize this to 22-23 when this team could get really expensive part of the argument for going after it then with the Nuggets is Jamal Murray will be healthier he'll be much out of further out of the ACL, but if we want to go for their basketball reference ages, so that's not the coming seasons, the season after. This is how young the Nuggets are. Jokic, age 27, Murray, age 25, MPJ, age 24. So yeah, like th- so. those guys will still be just like, I mean, you could argue that at least two of the three will be pre-prime and Jokic won the, won the MVP this year. So it could be a, a really strong foundation and then that can lead us into Michael Porter Jr. And the argument in favor of giving Michael Porter Jr. a big extension now is that he was a ridiculously productive player this year, 66% true shooting. As a, a starting forward, if you want to use per 36, 45% from three on 7.2 per 36 minutes. Also, you know, makes free throws pretty well. And the other big jump was going from 56% on twos to 63. Works fits beautifully with Jokic offensively. And he took strides defensively. There were still some definite missteps and everything like that. But I thought Porter Jr., He I thought he responded relatively well to the failures that he had in the 2020 playoffs defensively, particularly early in that series against the Utah Jazz and so those are the arguments in favor of it the arguments against it and this is the reason why I wouldn't like give him a max extension right now is his back absolutely terrifies me
0: yeah back knees i mean he's got like that brace on on his ankle but he's the sort of guy who you would think probably gets a max contract but you know i agree with you i think the injury to me unless he's willing to take a discount right now off of just the no-brainer max i would be willing to play it out into restricted free agency also the other thing too is that enables you to keep him as a trade asset in going into the trade deadline if a player were to become available because if you give him the max extension then uh, the base year rules make it too difficult to trade now also the the counter argument to that is you give him the max extension and you can trade him next summer whereas if you don't give him the max extension then you can't do that but uh i mean i i do have some concerns about his fit next to Jokic. i mean offensively obviously it's great but he had a very difficult playoffs i thought really at, at times on both ends you know just some games where you totally disappear and yes i think they should have run more plays for him him. He's got to get much better, punishing smaller defenders in the post. Obviously, having Murray around to help distribute w- will help him. But you do worry about you know him as a four and Nikola Jokic as a five defensively. I mean, you're obviously whenever you have Jokic, your overall mantra is going to be we're just going to outscore people. But maybe this is just going so far in that direction. It's a really tough call. But I I'm I don't think I would want to just give him that no brainer max five years. Let's go. There's too much downside risk yeah and and now obviously there's risk two in waiting number one pissing him off number two that it because he gets a three plus one offer sheet now of course you always have the maximum qualifying offer that you could just give him next year also
1: well and the other part for michael for michael porter jr that makes him different than somebody like Jokic or luca who we talked about earlier is that as much as I was impressed by what MPJ did this year, I don't see like a first team All NBA or like second team All NBA no. guy in there right now, and those are the types of players that you don't that you don't hesitate. And some of the other early maxes work out; they they absolutely can. We'll see what happens with De'Aaron Fox and some of the other guys. I've been reluctant on that level of player before, but
0: yeah, but like the worst De- Devin the wor- Booker like, was one where where they gave it to him, no brainer, and obviously we were wrong on that. Like yeah. that, was, that, that was a great decision.
1: Yeah, but the but the worst case scenario for me. The worst case scenarios of giving Porter Jr. the max and like him getting hurt or, you know, something else happening. Those are significantly more dangerous to me than the worst case scenarios of not giving him the max because I don't think Porter Jr. is going to like sign his qualifying offer and then, you know, take the financial risk there. And you have the max qualifying offer, three plus one, you could always work with that in different ways. And so to me, those are much more palatable than the possibility of kneecapping this unbelievable group that they have with Jokic and Murray and potentially, you know, Porter Jr. or somebody else because you committed, to somebody and then all of a sudden that turns into an albatross and then all of a sudden you're just screwed
0: yeah i mean it's funny now that i i was so much higher on porter jr in the draft and i was going crazy basically starting around pick number six when teams were passing on him and i love the pick for denver but i also am just not quite as high on him as everyone else but i mean that 66 true shooting on you know and he's 22 you hope that he's going to get better he's got to get better off the dribble he's got to get better as a passer he's got to get better as a post-up guy he's got to get better defensively but 22 year olds can do that I think he can also offer you some supplementary rim protection at times there are certainly concerns uh, about his attitude uh, at various points uh, and uh, how he is as a teammate yeah i don't know i, I mean i, I would want to get a discount for it i think the risk of you sign him to this and he doesn't improve or he's an attitude problem or he's an injury risk as opposed to okay so that you got that risk on one hand and then on the other hand you have the risk of pissing him off and also maybe uh he signed a three plus one elsewhere but that's the three plus one doesn't scare me as much as the back issue now maybe you can get like an exclusion in the contract joel Embiid bead style for the back but he's not as good as in but the practical mechanics of like okay we don't think you're gonna come back at all so we're just gonna waive you with this salary being unprotected usually it's not gonna be apparent at the time that oh this is like a career ending injury or something like that so maybe you have some uh games played incentives or something that make the end of the deal non-guaranteed in some way. I I don't know. But yeah, I I would be... I mean, the the Nuggets generally take care of their own. I expect the most likely outcome will be that he will get the max. And then Aaron Gordon is another interesting one. Supposedly, at the time he was traded, it was deemed laughable that he would sign the extension, which I think is something along the lines of four years, $84 is the most that they can offer him this offseason because he only makes 16.4 in 21-22. So you've got to start with a 120% rate off of that i mean i'm not feeling great about that amount of money for aaron gordon based on what we saw in the postseason but the idea is you push him down a level it's just it's tough to say we're gonna have him on that contract you gonna be paying four guys over 20 million aaron gordon is a potentially luxury as a fourth option i didn't think he was a defensive difference maker for this team in the playoffs and his shooting was pretty bad in the i don't think he like didn't make a three-pointer in the whole sun series for example yeah it, you know his cutting will be is pretty nice but, you know, I mean, I think it was telling that even in a series where they had all these guys out, there are games where he's playing 25, 30 minutes a game. You know, do you want to commit to that player at over $20 million a year going forward when you have all these tax concerns? But then well, also, you brought up the, the minutes played, and I think that's a reasonable that one. But you can also to bring
1: contend. up the role within the offense. You know, Aaron Gordon, when they're basically looking for anybody else that can play, like when people are hurt, and like, remember, Michael Porter Jr. dealt with a back issue during the Sun series. Aaron Gordon only took he took double digit field goal attempts in four of the 10 postseason games he played in and he made exactly and that's without Jamal Murray and he yeah, only made and that's without Jamal Murray. 50%. I mean, remember, we're talking about a guy who's a natural who's a power forward who gets a lot around the rim. He only made 50% or more of his shots in the playoffs in three of 10 games. So yeah, that was a challenge. And then, you know, some of, some of those will go in, but Gordon is, it's a challenging argument for him because I think we're getting more and more evidence that he's not particularly scalable. He can't, I think he can do well in a smaller offensive role for the Nuggets, but if he can't do a bigger one, then why is somebody going to give him this like crazy, like a 25 or a $30 million offer sheet? Like he's or not offer sheet to be a new contract. Like I, he hasn't proven that he has. And Gordon, an extremely high potential guy. And we talked about, how, like everybody talked about how young he was for years. You know, He'll turn turn 26 before next season. Gordon has not improved significantly offensively really at any point in his NBA career. He's... Has more of a he had more of a passing role, like a little bit more distribution on the on the magic this year when they had no one else. But it's not like that that went particularly great for Orlando or anything like that. It was just something that he had to do. Three point shooting hasn't gotten markedly better overall, other than in a few small samples. And so with Gordon, if he's going to hold firm to something like that again, I would I would roll the dice. Now it's a very different gamble with him because Gordon is an unrestricted free agent, and thus you have a lot less power. He could just leave. He could do you know he could do whatever he wants but also with gordon you can theoretically extend agree to an extension into the season which is useful like that is that is a potentially thing but we're also not going to see much of him with with jamal murray so the relevant sample size for yeah. gordon in the 21 22 season is going to be exceedingly small
0: yeah i mean that that this is why they're just that murray entry just like fucked them so badly i mean like they're supposed to have really two years of contention with gordon with porter jr on a lower salary and now Oh, you know, they gave up a lot to get Aaron Gordon let's not forget right like they've got their first round pick this year 26 overall I don't think that they would want to trade that for immediate help I mean you need cheap contributors going forward with what some of the salaries on this team are going to be and then their 2023 first and their 2025 first are both owed and they'll have and they, 20, also, traded, and they also traded and they also traded RJ Hampton and trade that deal. but I don't again I don't yeah yeah so now they're really are they are out of they got Zeke Najee and that's kind of it of rookie cheap contributors they got to get some more of those guys in here a uh, couple other notes they do have to decide on Dozier we mentioned that he'll surely be guaranteed they've got Vlatko uh, Chanchar who is non-guaranteed his guaranteed date's pretty early right at the start of free agency Jokic he's buddies with Jokic I think that's why he's even on the team to begin with he's not going to be a contributor in all likelihood next year uh, Austin Rivers you know I think they would be they would like to have him back I think I, they're limited in what they can pay him unless they dip into the mid-level which they, they could do I think Rivers would be a reasonable reasonable stopgap for them uh, as he was in this year's playoffs yeah Shaq Harrison is actually on a, I didn't realize he was on a coup way Marcus Howard they'll probably elevate him into the the main roster as they've done with some guys previously like Morris and they've had a lot of success developing guys too which is another reason why you don't necessarily want to trade a pick to try and get better this season anything else you want? No, to I talk think about that's about it guys? I mean a
1: lot of big decisions and also we will have a much clearer idea of where this franchise is going and it's a brutal timing and with the jamal murray injury for tim connelly and his staff but unfortunately that's the way it works and i think what makes the nuggets really compelling among all these teams a they're fascinating young talent but b the idea that they can kick the can down the road and actually i believe that is the best approach for both the aaron gordon and the michael porter negotiation unless those guys are willing to take a sufficient haircut which i don't expect
0: okay well that will do it here for this segment and we'll catch up with y'all later on till then